Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have back with me today one of our favorite all-time guests. Frequent listeners will know that Dr. Stephen Freiberg was a resident here at Johns Hopkins and a chief resident. He then went and did a cardiothoracic anesthesia fellowship at Duke and is now in private practice doing all kinds of anesthesia, including cardiac anesthesia down in Florida. And he's come and done some great podcasts with us. He's back to do another one. The most recent one we did was on weaning from bypass. And now in a very logical follow-up, we're going to talk about what to do in the post-bypass period. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jed. It's great to be back. And as you mentioned, do all sorts of anesthesia these days. And with a Continuing focus on cardiac anesthesia, I'd say overall, and exactly like you mentioned, we talked about weaning from bypass, and indeed, the natural segue for such a case would be talking about what we're doing or what needs to be done in the post-bypass period. Absolutely. Now, before we jump into the main topic, I do have to ask, and I hope this is okay with you, feel free to pass if you don't want to talk about it, but I have noticed, I rarely go do spend a lot of time in social media, but when I have been on Instagram, I've noticed that you have what's a very fun um, uh, kind of account, I guess, called the dad anesthesiologist. And I've seen fun little kind of dances with your kids and your wife and all kinds of stuff. Tell me what's up with that. It just seems like a fun thing to do during this crazy time. And I'm sure folks would be interested in hearing more about it. Oh, sure. I mean, that's exactly kind of how it evolved is that elective cases were down. I was home more often than I'd ever been in the past. And I still always have a creative bug. I've always had a creative bug. And so I started this account, The Dad Anesthesiologist, mostly based upon friends who just told me on my sort of personal social media accounts, oh, your videos are so funny, your kids are so funny, we want to see more of it. And I didn't have any dramatic goal at first, I just want to make people laugh and laugh at my kids and laugh at me. I've really never had much dignity as it were. And that's kind of continued to where I formed a website as well. It's called thedadesthesiologist.com. It's primarily a blog, and I mostly write about medicine and anesthesia and parenting and that has sort of now linked to tiktok and instagram and all sorts of fun stuff where i'm just trying to make people laugh and hopefully teach them a little bit about anesthesia and parenting as well that's awesome well i'll tell you i definitely remember that in addition to being a fantastic resident you were also always had a great sense of humor i remember that you would come every year to our kind of recruitment event for the medical students and give a little talk about anesthesia which was both inform both informative and also very funny um, and so I think it makes sense that you have these kind of fun and, and funny skits and stuff. And I, I think people would probably enjoy them. So we'll put some links uh, where they can check it out if they want to TikTok and Instagram and whatever else um, that you may have out there, including, of course, your blog, if people want to read about that. Um, so thanks. All right. Sure. Well, let's jump into the main event. So we're, we're talking about post bypass period. Tell me, um, you know, what what about this? Are we do you want to focus on? So as we talked about in the last talk, weaning from bypass is a critical period in cardiac case. So for a learner or a trainee, the attending is almost universally present during that time. But I found, especially when I was a resident, once things had sort of stabilized and cooled off, the attending might disappear again if they have another room or something significant to attend to. And I found that sometimes you were left figuring out that whole post-bypass period a little bit on your own. So I'm hoping in this podcast, I can present a framework that's both logistically informative, but also high yield in a practical sense to help a learner or a new resident or someone new to cardiac anesthesia to help understand and complete the anesthetic management in the post-bypass period. 
Yeah, I think that that sounds great to me. And I haven't done cardiac anesthesia for a while, but definitely uh, what I remember rings true with what you are saying. So how what makes sense in terms of how to divide this up? How do you divide this period up in your mind? And maybe we can go through it that way. Exactly. So I separate the post-bypass period into the following components. I'll list them here and then we'll, as you mentioned, go through them essentially one by one. So firstly is the venous decannulation and return of the pump blood to the patient. Then is the reversal of anticoagulation and achievement of hemostasis, ideally. Then the aortic decannulation and the reinfusion of residual pump blood Lastly, excuse me, not lastly, but next, and probably where the bulk of this work is done, is the goal to achieve and maintain the optimal hemodynamic and metabolic state, which is a very pretty sentence that actually often requires a lot of effort. The surgical procedure is completed. And then lastly, we're prepared to transport the patient to the intensive care unit. Great. All right. Well, as you said, let's go through those. So let's start with the first one you said, which is venous decannulation and initial return of pump blood. So that may sound like a bunch of nonsense to people who aren't familiar with it. So tell me what that means and what it involves. Absolutely. So after the separation from cardiopulmonary bypass, which I think I probably defined better in the previous podcast, but effectively the patient is now performing their own cardiopulmonary function. You're still connected to the bypass circuit, but there's really no venous return to the pump and there's no arterial outflow from the pump. For lack of a better word, the tubes are just in place. So what happens is the surgeon removes the venous cannula and closes the right atrial cannulation site, assuming that is the site of cannulation. And commonly the surgeon will say something like, take your venous. What he's referring to is there's a lot of blood, usually somewhere to the order of 300 mLs, that is remaining in the venous tubing, and that will be returned back to the venous reservoir by the perfusionist, and then that can be returned back to the patient. That's often accomplished by delivering aliquots of 100 to 200 uh, milliliters through the aortic cannula, as directed by the anesthesiologist or the surgeon, to augment cardiac index. And I find that this is one of the times to potentially exercise more discretion in how one completes this task, because now you basically have a heart that's performing independently of the bypass circuit. So you're looking on TEE or directly in the surgical field, and the heart may appear underfilled. And therefore, the surgeon can, excuse me, the perfusionist can administer volume and you can see how the patient responds. So if the surgeon asks to give 100 mLs and the blood pressure increases, the left ventricular and right ventricular function continue to perform well, and the blood pressure and cardiac index increases in conjunction with your central venous pressure, you know you're likely on the left side of the startling curve and therefore need or at least are responsive to more volume. On the flip side, if the perfusionist delivers that much volume and you see the blood pressure actually decreases, the heart dilates, and the CBP jumps up, you actually know you're probably on the right side of the Starling curve, and it might be wise to ease up onto how quickly you take on more volume and possibly add inotropic support. Yeah, so that uh, is one thing I really remember from these cases is the kind of giving back these small aliquots of blood and seeing how the patient responds. And it's a, a pretty potent tool, um, as you say, if used correctly. Absolutely. Um, all right, so 
we've done the, now the venous decannulation, we're giving that, what you just described, that initial pump blood back. Um, and then the next stage would be reversal of anticoagulation. So that sounds straightforward. What, what does that involve? Correct. So, and then just one other comment regarding the venous decannulation and the pump blood return. This probably falls a little bit more into, I, you know, the torture term, the art of anesthesia or cardiac surgery more so than the science of it, but how people might decide to separate depending on the perfusionist strategy. Occasionally, the perfusionists may not have a lot of volume left in their reservoir with which to return to the patient. And if the heart looks underfilled, there's a couple things that can be done here is that either the perfusionist can offer to chase, which basically means they're going to add crystalloid to the reservoir. And that can be a useful strategy. On the flip side, if one's trying to avoid the hemodilution from that, you can augment the blood pressure sometimes enough with vasoconstrictors to basically get off bypass until they get that venous volume back or sometimes even the aortic volume back. So it's just a little bit more of a strategy and personal preference, but something just to observe and keep in mind. Great. All right. So let's move on to reversal of anticoagulation. What are we thinking about there? So to review the reversal of anticoagulation, there's a great summary by Dr. Cam Gadimi and Dr. Ian Wellsby. They're folks I was lucky enough to train with at Duke, them along with Dr. Jared Levy are some of the real gurus of coagulation and anticoagulation. And we can put the references in the show notes as well. But basically what this refers to here is the administration of protamine. I'm going to talk about protamine a lot, but I think it's all really quite important. Protamine is a, one could argue, a fantastic drug, but can, it's a very tricky drug as well. So the, neutral, the neutralization of systemic heparin with protamine is typically completed or at least initiated before the aortic decannulation. The reason we do this is that if something goes bad or in the event of a catastrophic protamine reaction, you can actually get on back on bypass quite quickly. There's a lot of institutional variation on exactly how this is accomplished. But as I mentioned before, and I really can't say it enough, never, ever, ever give protamine before ensuring that both the perfusionist and the attending surgeon has heard and give you the okay. Quite frankly, I'm more inclined to annoy the surgeon if that's what it takes and say, are you ready for protamine? And he'll say, yes, I already told you give protamine. I don't care. Um, I will repeat it as many times as is necessary to make sure everyone's heard me. And on the flip side, I always keep my ears effectively widely open for even after protamine is started, because occasionally the surgeon will see something that they're concerned about and they don't want that reversal of, of anticoagulation. And they might say, stop protamine um, as you're administering it or during the administration. So I always listen very closely. Great. All right. And so the reason to never give protamine before making sure everyone's ready is the, well, I guess the catastrophic event would be if actually they still were on bypass and you then took away all their anticoagulation and they clotted off the, the bypass machine, right? Exactly. So protamine is the reversal agent of heparin and exactly like you mentioned, you can clot off the entire bypass circuit. If you're bored one day and you're well away from the bypass circuit, just mix heparin and protamine together. It basically makes snot. It's a pretty cool thing to do, but to give you an idea of what you basically don't want that concoction in your bypass tubing or in the patient for that matter. Yeah. All right. So how do you give protamine and how do you dose it? So it's such a topic of debate, you know, how to give it, where to give it, when to give it. 
Some surgeons want a slow infusion. For other surgeons, you can't get it in fast enough because for them, that's the rate-limiting step of moving on with the procedure. I've worked with anesthesiologists when I was a resident who are adamant about whether it's administered via central line or a peripheral line. I truthfully haven't found any literature to suggest it matters. But all I can say is go with your institutional protocol, be explicit and loud in your communication, ensuring that the perfusionist has heard you I'm repeating it again before you ever administer protamine. So a common practice is to administer a quote-unquote test dose of protamine because it is sort of such a known trigger for different reactions with which with we'll discuss. Often some of the somewhere in the idea of 20 to 30 milligrams to allow early detection of any serious hemodynamic change indicative of one of these protamine reactions. And if there's no apparent adverse reaction, the remainder of protamine dose is typically administered, usually over a 5 to 15-minute period as a slower infusion, as this is thought to help avoid some of the potential vasodilation. That said, one of the places I trained, we routinely drew it up in a syringe and bolus it pretty quickly. I've actually seen an inpatient surgeon administer protamine intra-aortically. I've seen that occur safely and also catastrophically. So again, just follow your institutional protocol, but never take protamine lightly. Sounds like good advice. (laughs) So what happens is suctioning of pump blood, excuse me, suctioning of blood from the surgical field into the reservoir, known as the cardiotomy section, or typically referred to as pump suckers, is discontinued usually either at the onset of protamine administration or when a small portion has been administered, usually less than one third of the dose. Again, this is because it's hypothesized that the neutralization of heparin in the blood remaining in the bypass reservoir could potentially cause clot, which could cause a clot, which would prohibit emergency reinstitution of cardiopulmonary bypass. So then it comes to how to dose it. It's often advocated to use a calculation from a from a point of care device to better calculate the best dose. These are sometimes called a HEPCON as uh, one of the trade names. And if that's not available, usually a dose of somewhere between 0.7 to 1 milligrams of protamine per 100 units of initial pre-bypass heparin dose. So for standard concentrations that I've seen, which is 1,000 units of heparin per ml and 10 milligrams of protamine per ml, that approximates a CC for CC dose. And after the administration of that dose, further evaluation for residual heparin effects can be accomplished by measuring the activated clotting time, called the ACT, or also rechecking the heparin protamine titration assay. And again, another option is looking at viscoelastic clot strength using either a TAG or a ROTEM. Plasma concentrations of residual heparin can actually increase after that administration of the protamine dose as peripheral tissues gradually release endothelial-bound heparin into the circulation as reperfusion occurs. So therefore, additional protamine is sometimes administered according to that assay, or if there's clinical effect, another 25 to 100 milligrams of protamine may be administered. But in most cases, there's really no reason to exceed one milligram per 100 units of total heparin or so. Again, there's tremendous variety in practice here, but it's ultimately centered around targeting the optimum dose because too little can result in adequate hemostasis, but so can, excuse me, 
too little can result in inadequate hemostasis, but so can too much. Yeah. Um, and it does seem uh, like having some way to measure, right? Whether you're doing an ACT or a viscoelastic assay, but something to give you an idea of whether you've adequately reversed is a good thing. Absolutely. And then one of the things that's often concerned about is what's called heparin rebound. And some patients who receive very large doses of heparin, often due to either an altered responsiveness or especially morbidly obese patients who may have an increased volume of distribution, this heparin rebound is related to nonspecific binding of heparin in plasma proteins and fatty tissues. And this can often be uh, counteracted by administering an additional low-dose protamine infusion, usually about 25 milligrams per hour over two to four hours postoperatively. And I have seen several surgeons who do like that practice. Makes sense. You get tested a lot on protamine reactions. Do you want to say a few words on those? Absolutely. The protamine reactions are highly testable and, as I say, also highly pimpable. I've found them to be some of my favorite questions to be asked by attendings. And so there are a few different types of protamine reactions you might see. The most common is just a transient hypotension. And this is due to the vasodilatation due to direct and indirect effects of protamine and potential complement activation by these heparin protamine complexes. These reactions are actually pretty common. And as I'd alluded to, associated with a faster rate of protamine infusion and usually just in augment with a little bit of phenylephrine or vasopressor choice is typically all one needs to just get by. It's very self-limiting and just a touch of temporary support can get you through that reaction. The more severe anaphylactic mediated by IgE or anaphylactoid reaction, which is just a direct result of mast cell degranulation with vasoplegia is less common, but it can occur in individuals who have antibodies to protamine due to previous exposure. And commonly thought previous exposures include protamine-containing insulin, such as NPH, a previous allergy to protamine, of course, a fish allergy, and actually, I saw on a very old exam, patients with a vasectomy were thought to have enhanced uh, reactivity to protamine. But either way, in such case, significant cardiovascular collapse can occur with protamine exposure. And this is typically unrelated to the, to the rate of the protamine administration. And then these reactions are treated in the same way as any other perioperative anaphylactic rea- reaction. I've actually seen this type of reaction once. It was very bizarre that it actually occurred quite late from the protamine administration, and it felt counterintuitive to start a patient on epi when they've got a hyperdynamic ventricle on TE, their cardiac index of six, but indeed it was the epi that improved the symptoms, and when the drapes were taken down, the patient was actually covered in a rash from head to toe. Mm. The other reaction that we worry about is an acute pulmonary vasoconstriction leading to right ventricular failure. This is probably the rarest type and can be accompanied by bronchospasm or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The mechanism of this type of reaction is thromboxane release from platelets. Treatment of this is also very similar to treatment of an anaphylactoid reaction with stopping the protamine and implementing resuscitative measures, but this reaction can cause such significant right heart failure that one might need to reheparinize and reinstitute cardiopulmonary bypass. The question is really, if a protamine reaction is so severe that someone needs to return to bypass, what do you do then? 
it's typical to administer anti-inflammatory and vasoactive agents as if one were treating an allergy. As I would argue, the risk of administering these medications is probably quite low than having a repeat reaction. So often methylprednisone, diphenhydramine, and famotidine might be administered. As mentioned, an epinephrine or even norepinephrine and vasopressin infusions can be added to treat hypotension. It's reasonable cons- to consider methylene blue for significant refractory vasoplegia, though I do get nervous about patients in poor right heart function as methylene blue can increase PVR. But the thing is, is that there's really no clear guidelines about the safety of what to do next, whether one should re-administer protamine or basically proceed without it. Some have safely re-administered protamine without incident. And in theory, this is because the initial anaphylactic reaction is so significant. You've basically depleted all your inflammatory mediators that you have a quote unquote post anaphylaxis refractory period. But then there's really no way to guarantee that. So some clinicians will avoid re-administering protamine. You basically elect to reverse the heparin with other blood products because there is no other option, no other pharmacologic option. So excessive bleeding may require large transfusion of blood products like FFP, platelets, and fibrinogen, which of course has its own risks. The other thing worth mentioning is anytime a patient has a serious allergic reaction, one should ideally be able to collect a blood serum tryptase level, but often in the midst of all the craziness, it's tough to remember to do that. Let me ask you, so it, let's say you give the protamine and it's not, a, you know, it, you, you actually get either quite a lot or all of it in, and then you have this, uh, you know, severe anaphylactoid reaction or maybe even the cardiopulmonary collapse and you have to go back on bypass. Can you just reheparinize even though you just gave all this protamine? You can. And sometimes it will take an increased dose from what your initial dosage is. So I will typically, if one requires systemic reheparinization, I will personally typically bolus about 500 units per kilo to really try to get them to have a therapeutic activated clotting time quickly and often before you even really have the time to check the activated clotting time given the extremis of the patient. Gotcha. Okay. So let's move on. The next kind of uh, category that you laid out was aortic decannulation. What's going on with that? Exactly. We've, I think, beaten protamine into the ground. So the aortic cannula is removed by the surgeon, usually as protamine is neutralizing the heparin. In general, the administration was, is administered in some of the ways we talked about before. And if there's no evidence of reaction, the aortic cannula is removed. Because again, if the aortic cannula is still in place, we can go back on bypass comparatively easily if necessary. And then typically we get the cannula out before neutralization is completely complete because we're trying to avoid any theoretical clot to form on the aortic cannula tip. When the aortic cannula is removed, we typically try to control the systolic BP, often getting it to less than 100 millimeters of mercury during the decannulation to reduce risk of bleeding, aortic dissection, or another vascular injury. This can be accomplished with nitroglycerin or balsapropofol. Often, if you already have a temporary pacemaker in place, you can adjust the settings such as ventricular asynchronous pacing or even rapid ventricular pacing to get the blood pressure down. But the anesthesiologist closely controls the systolic blood pressure until the surgeon closes the decannulation site with the aortic purse string sutures. 
At this right. point, one, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so the, um, so there's a variety of ways to try to make this, all these things, whether you're just reducing the blood pressure with some extra propofol, whether you're actually doing rapid ventricular pacing, this is all to try to make sure that, that those sutures can come together, that hole can be closed effectively without risk of rupture, right? Exactly. Okay. What's so next? once the aortic cannula is taken out, there's usually anywhere between 500 to 1,500 milliliters of residual heparinized blood in that tubing, and that gets returned to the reservoir. This whole blood has not been further processed. Therefore, it actually still contains clotting factors and platelets that are helpful in restoring hemostasis after reinfusion. However, the residual pump blood also contains heparin. The way the perfusionist chooses to return the blood to the patient can typically be accomplished in two ways. Either it can be hemoconcentrated, which removes a lot of the heparin, but also removes a lot of the clotting factors and platelets. The alternate method is to basically just bag it or reinfuse it. The upside here being that the platelets and clotting factors are still in place, but there still remains heparin in that line. So often an additional small dose of protamine, maybe 25 to 50 milligrams, will be administered to counteract this. How that's actually given to the patient is either bagged by the perfusionist or sometimes it's directly connected to the patient by a line from the perfusionist, often called a long line or a hot line, to directly administer into the patient. And lastly, what a perfusionist will do is any blood that's in the residual reservoir taken from the cell salvage, known as cell saver, this can also be spun down and administered as cell saver, which also has some residual heparin in it. Okay, great. So you want to just be aware that the heparin's in there, you can deal with it in a variety of ways that you've laid out, um, including potentially giving some additional protamine. Exactly. All right. So I think the next step you had laid out was achieving hemostasis. What are we thinking about there? Exactly. So after all this has gone on, and usually this happens in concurrence with the sternal closure, but really our role as the anesthesia providers or anesthesia physicians are to optimize the patient for a transport to the ICU while managing the huge variety of hemodynamic and metabolic problems that could arise. And I think it's useful to go through it by system, and this is structured in a great review by Fitzsimmons et al. that we'll also link in the notes. So obviously, from a cardiovascular standpoint, and this is naturally a focus of a cardiac surgery, but we're basically trying to optimize blood pressure and cardiac index, cardiac output. So the clinically significant causes of hypotension are usually due to one or more of the following problems, which really are the classic causes of hypotension. And those include inadequate preload, secondary due to either ongoing bleeding and to a degree from insensible losses, compromised contractility, which can either be due to global or focal left or right ventricular function, decreased afterload or SVR, and either too low or an excessively high heart rate. So to address left ventricular dysfunction requires a, or deserves a fair amount of attention as it's especially germane to cardiac surgery. Now the LV dysfunction can occur due to pre-existing chronic ventricular dysfunction, but it might be exacerbated by the myocardial ischemia, stunning or ischemia reperfusion injury that can all occur with cardiopulmonary bypass. On the flip side, with myocardial injury resulting in post-bypass ischemia infarction, this is especially likely to happen with myocardial revascularization procedures like cabbage or CAB, as they might be called. Other causes include 
either air or particulate emboli in the coronary graft or a native artery, coronary vasospasm, coronary thrombosis, some sort of technical surgical problem like a kinking of the graft, or incomplete revascularization secondary to poor distal targets. And this is where TEE can be extremely helpful in trying to determine if there's a decreased global LV function or if there's a regional wall motion abnormality that might be able to be addressed surgically or otherwise. If all the reversible surgical factors are investigated and addressed, interventions by the anesthesiologist should focus on optimizing the heart rate, pacing mode, drug therapy, inotrope therapy, in order to optimize cardiac index. Now, right. in terms of... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you. Uh, so we are ending there, the kind of left ventricular dysfunction category that you had mentioned... And then we want to talk about what vasoactive drugs can you use in this situation? Correct. So in terms of the vasoactive drugs that one choice is, again, there is a lot of institutional variation. But when it comes to inotropes, typical agents include milbramone, dobutamine, epinephrine, or even dopamine. Commonly, patients who are hypertensive during weaning from cardio bypass, especially if there's evidence of ischemia and nitroglycerin is added, while nicardipine, clavidipine, or nitroprusside might be helpful to reduce afterload in patients without evidence of ischemia. Another thing to think about is diastolic dysfunction in patients, the neglected type of heart failure, which to summarize is restricted filling with the inability of the LV to relax and accommodate blood and then return it to the circulation due to impaired relaxation can occur with systolic dysfunction or even occur in patients with preserved LV function, it's worth a mention as it's a known predictor of a difficulty to wean from bypass. But in short, the patients are very fluid sensitive and volume responsive, and therefore they're best kept euvolemic, and they do best with either atrial or AV sequential pacing just for the atrial kick. There are some surgeons who only put in ventricular wires, and I'm really not a fan of this practice. Yeah, and that's because you can't get you can't actually stimulate the atria to get that atrial kick. If you're pacing and you only have V-wires, you lose, you lose the ability to do that. Exactly. Then so you the, talked about, yeah, yeah. sorry, you talked about LV dysfunction. Um, I was going to ask you about RV dysfunction. Yes, absolutely. The right side is the often neglected side, though I think it's starting to gain more understanding and attention in, amongst all medical practitioners, quite frankly. So the RV dysfunction can manifest typically with an increased central venous pressure while you also have systemic hypotension. And this is due to the fact that you have a reduced functional LV preload. Basically, the right side can't deliver it to the left side. The direct visualization of the surgical field reveals a distended RV with poor contraction is one way to determine if there's RV dysfunction. And on TEE, you might see RV hypokinesis, with the company tricuspid regurgitation, the inter interventricular septum may be shifted toward the left, thereby impairing filling of the LV and resulting in increased left-sided filling pressures despite inadequate LV volume. And a leftward shift during diastole indicates RV volume overload, while leftward septal shift during systole indicates RV pressure overload. But commonly, you have a combination of the two. Now, right ventricular dysfunction may be pre-existing or caused by uh, pulmonary hypertension, right ventricular ischemia or infarct, intracoronary embolism, or pre-existing trigospid regurgitation. Intracardiac air, which is always present to some degree following open left-sided cardiac procedures, 
preferentially enters the right coronary artery due to its more anterior position. That is, the air effectively floats upward, and that's one thing to keep in mind with right ventricular dysfunction. And then the other big important component is ensuring that you have adequate blood pressure and, as a result, adequate coronary perfusion pressure because the right ventricular the right ventricular function is very responsive to adequate and dependent on adequate coronary perfusion pressure. And so classically, the things like hypoxemia, hypercarbia, acidosis, hypothermia, or pain, those are all, those are all well avoided, as is the case with any surgery. And evidence of right ventricular dysfunction, they tend to respond well, ideally respond well to inotropic support that also have pulmonary arterial vasodilatory function like milanone or dobutamine. And also it's wise to avoid excessive fluid administration because this can also worsen RV function. And refractory RV failure, sometimes continuous inhalation of aerosolized vasodilators like nitric oxide or epoprostenol might be used to help treat pulmonary hypertension and reduce RV afterload. In truly refractory cases, a patient might need temporary mechanical support like a right ventricular assist device. Great. So I think that's a lot of great tips. And, you know, we see in these cases, milrinone being used, as you mentioned, or dobutamine a lot to really help the right heart. And I think that's, um, you know, a very significant uh, tool that you have. Um, So you mentioned a little bit before about vasoplegia, refractory vasoplegia. Tell me a little more about that and how you address it if it happens. So vasodilatation identified by hypotension and markedly decreased SVR, if you have a way of calculating it, is very common during bypass and can be severe post-bypass due to all the inflammatory changes that the bypass circuit can create. Risk factors for vasoplegia include preoperative use of agents like ACE inhibitors, preoperative heparin or calcium channel blockers, as well as a pre-bypass hemodynamically unstable patient. And agents used to treat vasoplegia are the ones we usually treat, like norepinephrine, vasopressin, mentioned methylene blue. There's newer drugs that are angiotensin II analogs uh, by the trade name Giapresa, which I've had a little bit of experience with and some thought behind things like vitamin C. But I'd say most patients with vasoplegia or vasodilatory shock respond to guided fluid fluid therapy and the typical norepinephrine or vasopressin infusions. Great. Do you ever get into issues with arrhythmias? And if so, how do you handle those? Very commonly, you can see supraventricular or ventricular arrhythmias, pretty common when weaning from bypass. And I believe we touched on in one of my previous podcasts about bypass Normal sinus rhythm is ideal because it provides the atrial contribution to ventricular filling and normalized, synchronized contraction of the ventricles. So when you run into these, one of the big things is to make sure you optimize and normalize your electrolytes. There are pharmacotherapies we use, but I would argue that especially in the operating room with a cardiac surgeon, with a patient under general anesthesia, don't be afraid to shock people. I find that uh, electrical therapy is one of the most effective in correcting an arrhythmia. And again, you have pretty much everything you could ever want in a situation with which you need to defibrillate or cardiovert someone. So I would argue in the cardiac OR, we use electrical therapy quite frequently. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
What happens if somebody ends up just in refractory cardiogenic shock? I know we see this sometimes. What's the approach to that? We do, and it's certainly difficult to manage and never exciting to manage. It's thought to occur in about 0.2 to 6% of patients after cardiac surgery, and obviously the signals would include the inability to maintain oxygenation or cardiac output or evidence of poor end-organ perfusion. A couple of different things we can do here is there's different types of typical uh, excuse me, different types of mechanical circulatory support, and these include placement of an intraaortic balloon pump can help with reducing both afterload and inc- improving myocardial perfusion. Other agents would be a percutaneous or an implantable ventricular assist device, or even going on to ECMO, and these can be employed in cases of refractory um, cardiogenic shock. And a lot of times these can actually be temporary in order to just allow the hibernating myocardium or the heart to recover for a period of time. The selection of what device tends to depend on individual patient hemodynamic factors, but also a lot on surgical and institutional preference and resources. Great. So what about the lungs? Can you get into issues with the lungs? I'm sure you can. What do you see and how do you approach them? Absolutely. So, you know, it's cardiopulmonary bypass after all, so we can't forget the lungs. It's been shown that lung protective ventilation strategies, and these, of course, include low tidal volumes, low driving pressures, and PEEP, can potentially reduce the incidence of postoperative pulmonary complications. But things like airway occlusion, bronchospasm, respiratory insufficiency can result in hypoxemia, inadequate ventilation, and increased airway pressures. And in conjunction with what we mentioned before, one of the worst things it can cause is it can impair your right ventricular dysfunction. So really, you should just be aware of any difficulties in ventilating or oxygenating the lung before attempting to wean from bypass. And both lungs should be expanded with positive pressure ventilation. You should look for appropriate lung inflation in the surgical field. And then the differential for managing intraoperative pulmonary issues is typically very similar to non-cardiac cases. Great. So you had mentioned all up front that, you know, coagulopathy, kind of managing uh, hemostasis is really key. So when you run into issues with bleeding and coagulopathy or on the other end, excess thrombosis, what do you see and how do you address it? Exactly. And Ian Wellesby, as I mentioned before, would say to us that bleeding is a problem for today, clotting is a problem for tomorrow. Um, so that's sometimes one thing I try to keep in mind. But as has been shown, the best way to manage these patients is with guided therapy and how one chooses to guide that therapy can vary a lot. But I think what's most important is that you're using clinical judgment and your laboratory functions to help guide the blood product utilization that you employ. So we typically check hemoglobin or hematocrit levels about every 30 minutes or so post bypass, more frequently in patients who are unstable or bleeding profusely. And again, a topic of hot debate, but it's pretty common that patients are transfused red blood cells with a hemoglobin less than seven, a certain, excuse me, hemoglobin less than eight, and certainly less than seven. And then coagulopathy is, again, very common in the post-bypass period due to all the dysfunction that the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit can cause. And therefore, we will look at, at a minimum, platelet count and often look at INR, fibrinogen level, as well as viscoelastic testing, trying to treat thrombocytopenia, typically of platelet counts less than 50,000, and we will often treat with FFP or other agents if an INR is greater than 1.5 and treat fibrinogen or hypofibrinogenemia with cryoprecipitate if the levels are less than 150 to 200 milligrams per deciliter or so. 
And again, I can't underestimate, excuse me, I can't underemphasize how important the use of viscoelastic tests can be to supplement our decision-making in addition to the sort of standard laboratory tests. And from a thrombosis standpoint, it's much more rare, but in these sort of cases when the coagulation cascade can be so dysregulated, one can actually see acute intracardiac thrombosis or pulmonary thromboembolism or thrombus pretty much anywhere in the major vessels, especially it can occur with a prolonged bypass time. And uh, all I can say is this is never a good thing. For sure. All right. How about metabolic abnormality? So you said that you got to be careful with your electrolytes. Obviously, if you're dealing with uh, arrhythmias, this is really important. What do you think about? What do you typically see? Right. So I would say few of them are the biggest ones we addressed. Hypocalcemia is very common and is typically treated with administration of calcium chloride or calcium gluconate. Again, usually shortly after separation from bypass. I mentioned again in the previous podcast that calcium administration can be controversial. There's some thought about whether it can contribute to reperfusion injury. So I do try to wait at least 10 to 15 minutes to try to allow for sort of normal reperfusion and wash out of other metabolic and inflammatory mediators. But certainly after one separates from bypass and if a person is hypocalcemic, especially the setting of hypotension, this should be used, this should be treated. Then with hypokalemia, it's also pretty common in the setting of cardiopulmonary bypass and can contribute to uh, cardiac irritability in terms of a rhythm standpoint. And these causes typically tend to be from diuretic therapy, very commonly perfusions will administer mannitol on cardiopulmonary bypass. And then again, when patients are being treated for hyperglycemia with insulin, can also drive hypokalemia. Hypokalemia is typically corrected in the post-bypass period, usually with infusion of 10 to 20 milliequivalents of potassium over 30 minutes. A central venous catheter is certainly preferred and continuous cardiac monitoring is necessary. But it's actually my personal practice to not be overly aggressive with potassium repletion. And that's because as one starts to wean insulin and as one starts to wean epinephrine, and when a decreased minute ventilation that might occur in preparation to extubate the patient, these actually lead to an increased extracellular potassium level. So in the absence of electrical irritability, I will often not correct potassium to, if it's already at about 3.6 or so, if those other potassium lower fact, lowering factors are already present. That makes sense. What about the other end of things if you have elevated potassium? So hyperkalemia can be secondary to the potassium-containing cardioplegia used by the perfusionist or extracellular shifts from respiratory metabolic acidosis. And it's really a problem with patients with impaired kidney function, and it can interfere with cardiac conduction, and it's treated in the standard way that hyperkalemia is treated with calcium to help stabilize the myocardial membrane and then to use insulin and dextrose hyperventilation, and even diuretics if needed to help treat the hyperkalemia. How about magnesium? Uh, I think you can also, we often think, all right, if, if potassium is low, magnesium may also be low. What do you do with hypomagnesemia? That's exactly right. And it's very common in the post-bypass period, and hypomagnesemia can contribute to arrhythmias, myocardial dyspnea, and ventricular dysfunction. And that's mostly because of hemodilution due to the fact that we use a lot of magnesium-free fluids. So if hypomagnesemia is confirmed by laboratory testing or even suspected due to arrhythmias, 
typically IV mag is given between one to two grams over 15 minutes because it can be known to result in hypotension. But personally, I love bolusing. If the, I love bolusing magnesium often two grams at a time, especially if the blood pressure is already elevated. I feel like you get uh, two birds with one stone. And overall, I find that there's really a downside to giving magnesium because such high doses are required to achieve toxic blood levels. And Jed, as you know well, I think uh, Dr. Lipset, for this reason, rarely even checks magnesium levels. And as I recall, in the cardiac ICU at Hopkins, patients used to get, was I think, five or six grams of mag as soon as they hit the door. On arrival. Yep. Yep. So, you know, again, this is to help with the myocardial irritability. And again, because it's pretty hard to achieve a toxic magnesium level unless you're on OB. And that's another story. Right. And I think that's an instructive thing to think about. I always tell residents, you know, on OB, a patient with preeclampsia might be on a magnesium drip at six an hour, right? They're getting six uh, grams of magnesium every hour. So for us to give a one-time bolus dose of six is not going to cause anyone any harm. So I think that's that's a it's good to think about the fact that in the big scheme of how we use magnesium, this is actually not a lot. Exactly. How and about then, glucose management? Yeah, exactly. The Society of Thoracic Surgeons recommends maintaining a blood glucose at least less than 180 during bypass and um, in the post-bypass period, and this is accomplished with IV insulin, and this is extremely common for patients to be hyperglycemic in the excuse me, while on bypass or post-bypass, especially given the high population of diabetics that require cardiac surgery. And post and poor perioperative glycemic control has been associated with increased morbidity and mortality. So another thing I think is common, uh, more so in cardiac surgery than probably any other, right, is that you're often cooling patients. So if you don't rewarm them all the way, you're going to have issues with hypothermia. And I know that happens a lot. So how does that work into your thinking? Absolutely. So it has to do with, it can be a combination of things. Sometimes surgeons are impatient to wait for full rewarming. But on the flip side, even, and I've really said that a lot today, flip side, I don't know why. Um, a decrease in the core temperature after hypothermic bypass is terminated is what's called after drop. It can often be seen just because a patient's in a cold operating room. There's a lot of surface area exposed. We're often administering blood products that are being warmed to differing degrees. And so basically we just try to warm the room, warm the blood products, use forced air warmers or underbody warmers, because as we know, hyperthermia can exacerbate decrease. Hy- hypothermia, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Hypothermia can exacerbate decreased myocardial dysfunction, excuse me, exacerbate myocardial dysfunction, as well as contribute to bleeding from platelet dysfunction. And it also can decrease metabolism of intravenously administered drugs. Great. All right. So you've dealt with all these issues. What are your final steps before you're ready to move out to the ICU? So as the surgeon is finally getting ready to actually approximate the sternum, I always look closely at the echo for changes in RV function. I look at our monitors to make sure there's no significant changes in central venous pressure and also pay close attention to peak airway pressures to make sure everything stays copacetic once the chest is closed. I will re-examine the repair. That is to say, if a valve was replaced to make sure there's no new or worsening paravalvular leaks and make sure that the valve is still functioning well. And if there's any sort of evidence of ongoing badness, especially one that might require surgical correction, I don't leave the OR. 
because I feel pretty strongly that the best place for any patient to receive emergency care is in the operating room. And if anything looks bad, I want to make sure it's fixed as much as it can be before we go to the ICU. At this point, if one is not already going, and it commonly is, a continuous infusion of an IV sedation such as propofol or Presidex, dexmedetomidine, is initiated before discontinuing the volatile anesthetic. And then I encourage folks to start packing up once things are stable. Though it might seem unfair, no one wants to wait on us, so I start making sure my lines are organized, my oral gastric tube is in place, all the infusion pumps are plugged in, etc. And it's just so important to have an organized system for transport. These patients are still very sick or very, even if they are stable or in a very tenuous state, they require constant monitoring. You need to have all your emergency drugs, et cetera. And then once you arrive at the intensive care unit, as these patients are almost universally brought to, whether they're extubated in the operating room or not, and that's certainly its own topic of discussion. But once one gets to the ICU, I can't, communicate how important it is to have a good handoff and handover to the intensive care unit, whatever your institutional process might be. Yeah, absolutely. And having worked in those units, uh, I, I know uh, the from that end, it's really, really important. I mean, it always is no matter what the surgery was, but I think very much so true in cardiac surgery where you really need to know a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, how it went, what was done, because you can see this stuff rear its head again in the post uh, in the post op period. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, that was an incredibly thorough uh, review of what to do in the post bypass period. Thank you so much. Any last uh, things to add? No, I think that's really it. I really do love cardiac surgery and cardiac anesthesia, and I hope anyone who's new on the rotation or repeating through the rotation enjoys as much as I do. Ask questions, pay attention, and have fun. All right. Um, so let's turn to the part of our show where we do random recommendations. Uh, we haven't been as good about it as we uh, were for a while, but if folks out there have them, please send them in on Twitter or via email or post them on the website. But Stephen, let me ask you, do you have anything you'd be willing to share with our audience? Sure. I've actually been holding on to this one for a long time as I listen to everyone else's recommendations, and I made it pretty recently. It's actually a recipe, and I guess with the recommendation of this recipe come two associated recommendations – so if anyone's seen the movie Chef, it's really a great movie with John Favreau, and I enjoyed it because I think it's well done, it's funny, as a father I can relate, and it's about food, which I can certainly love. But in that movie, he cooks for Scarlett Johansson, and he uses pasta, it would appear to effectively seduce Scarlett Johansson, and you know, who, who doesn't want to do that? But whether you want to seduce Scarlett Johansson or not, the pasta really does look amazing, and from the movie, there's also on Netflix called The Chef Show, where he goes through a lot of the recipes he made in the movie and actually teaches you how to do them. Either way, you can just Google Scarlet's Pasta online, and it's it's awesome. It's very simple. It's just pasta with, I think it's olive oil, garlic, parsley, and Parmesan, but it's been a winner anytime I've served it. So I, I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. It's it's definitely not low carb, but it is vegetarian. So at least it's got that going for it. <laughs> it sounds delicious. I love making pasta with just those simple ingredients. We'll do like an aglio e olio with just the olive oil, garlic, little parsley. Yeah, absolutely. It's delicious. Um, you know, I will, uh, on the topic, um, if folks haven't uh, seen, if you've got kids, there's a show called um, the Kids Baking Championship. I believe it's on the Food Network. You can get it, though, on um, 
I think it's on Netflix uh, or it may be Amazon Prime or something. But uh, if you just Google it, you'll be able to find it. It's a lot of fun. It's kids, uh, usually in the like 10 to 13-year-old range, who do kind of like the Great British Baking Show. It's a contest. They bake. There's a couple judges. And uh, they have uh, about four or five episodes as they get Winnie down and then they are winnowed down. And then they uh, have a kids baking champion. It's fun to watch in, in, my, in general, but my kids especially really like to watch it. That sounds great. All right. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. All right. That was great. A really nice review of that period in cardiac anesthesia. If you have thoughts, anything to add, comments, go to the website, akrak.com. You can leave a comment that others can see and learn from as well. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can join the Facebook ACRAC group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it does make a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations individually anytime, if you'd like, by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or going to Venmo slash J Wolpaw. Uh, that's Venmo slash J-W-O-L-P, like Peter A-W. All right. Big, big thanks to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our outgoing social media manager, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, newly minted doctor, I believe. Uh, congratulations, Kimia. And our incoming social media manager, April Liu. Uh, as I said, Kimia will stay on to contribute to the notes uh, for the show. So we've got a great team, and I thank them all. And, of course, our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Stephen Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 